This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you are listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast, where I help pediatric therapists become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. On this show, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians and educators feel more confident in the way that they serve their caseloads so they can help school-age kids grow up to be successful, kind, well-adjusted people. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 99 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. In this episode, I interview special guest Allison Fors. Allison is a pediatric speech-language pathology assistant who has a background in child language as well as cleft palate and resonance disorders. She also offers a variety of fantastic resources through her Teachers Pay Teachers store, And in this interview, we talk about her experiences, both as a clinician and as a parent of a child with a cleft palate. So cleft palate and resonance disorders in general are a very niche area of speech pathology. So if you are a speech pathologist or if you are any type of provider who works with young kids who have cleft palate or different genetic syndromes, This episode is going to be really helpful to you because there are a variety of misconceptions around cleft palate and it can be a really challenging area to work with just because it is so specialized and niche. I always found it to be a very confusing and somewhat intimidating area to work with and she offers some really good tips and just some great information about navigating it from the parent side, as well as some things to look at from the professional side as well. And then we wrap up the interview talking about her process for making materials, how she learned some of the skills that she has right now as she uses things like clip art 
and some simple tools to create materials for clinicians, as well as her process for doing research to figure out what products she should make. So if you are interested in Clef Palette, and if you are interested in creating materials for clinicians or educators, you will find this episode really helpful. Before we get going in the episode, I wanted to remind you about my free executive functioning implementation guide. One of the biggest concerns that I've noticed among school leaders, as well as just, you know, all the professionals working with kids is children's mental health. But the problem is that schools often don't have the information that they need in order to adequately support kids in this area. The truth is that many school-based intervention plans for things like mental health, behavior management, and even social skills intervention that can have a huge impact on kids' self-esteem neglects an essential set of skills. So in this free executive functioning implementation guide, I show you how to get your school on the right track because most people don't realize that this is a critical area where we need to support kids in order to help them to be resilient and independent. Many times there is a significant amount of anxiety that is caused by weak executive functioning. And if anxiety stems from executive functioning issues, things like talk therapy or just simply doing things like positive reinforcement are not going to work in isolation. We need to actually teach the skills students need in order to be able to plan and execute complex tasks so they don't go into their school day anxious about what lies ahead of them. So to learn more about this free guide and why it is such an important piece of supporting students' relationships, their emotional regulation, as well as their self-esteem, you're going to want to check out this guide. All you need to do to do that is go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash efschools. Again, that's drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash efschools. So now please enjoy this interview with Allison Force. Today, I am joined by Allison Force, a speech language pathologist from allisonforce.com. And so I thought we'd start off by having you share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am um, at the t- current moment in time, I am home with my two kids, a five-year-old and a two-year-old. So what I've been doing is creating resources. I'm a speech language resource author and I blog at allisonforce.com. Um I have also worked in schools. I've been elementary, middle, high school. I've done private practice. That was kind of more my groove. I really liked more the um, private practice setting, working alongside with OTs and PTs. So kind of my areas of interest are early language stuff, like early intervention. Mm -hmm. And then I also have a cleft-affected daughter. So that's been a recent area of interest in the past couple of years for me. Great. Yeah, that was, so cleft palate was my area that I wanted to specialize in. Um, And I didn't end up going that route just because it is so specialized and it's so much easier to get a job in the schools. So I definitely want to dive into that topic later on. I know that when I was in grad school, the professor who was the cleft palate person, I was kind of obsessed with him, but also terrified of him. And I think that he 
liked that reputation, but I just remember I, I just wanted to be him. He was so knowledgeable <laughs> and it was such a, it's such an intimidating area when you get your textbook with all the genetic disorders and so much, so many technical terms and conditions yes. to the terminology is completely different. Yeah. I mean, what we're just, dealing with in any other aspect of speech. So, yeah. Well, why don't we actually, since we're kind of on that topic right now, I wanted to talk a little bit about what you're doing as far as, as, you know, work and creating things. But since we're talking about cleft palate, um, do you want to talk a little bit about, so you, you mentioned that you got into that because of you, your daughter is impacted by it. So, mm -hmm. um, I mean, what's been your journey in trying to figure out, uh, just learn more about that area? Yeah. So I, well, I found out when I was pregnant that like something was up with her. They discovered that she had micronathia, which is a recessed jaw. So she basically didn't have a lower jaw. And they were like, this could mean that she has a cleft palate. They weren't sure though, because seeing that on an ultrasound is extremely difficult. Um, so we didn't know until she was born, but it was like highly suspected that she had a cleft palate. Mm -hmm. So leading up to delivery, we did like all the, you know, we met with the craniofacial team. We talked about like delivery options and what it would look like after she was born, given different scenarios, things like that. So I was doing homework in terms of like feeding, um, and kind of those like really early, you know, basically the way that cleft impacts an infant, right. which is primarily like feeding. And for her, it was also breathing and swallowing, but that was due to the jaw. She just mm -hmm. couldn't form a swallow and she couldn't breathe on her own. Um, but that is what like, of course, kickstarted me into just like, and I'm the type of person that just researches everything. Like if mm -hmm. <laughs> I will go on the internet for better or worse and Google all the things um, my husband is a doctor, so he is the same way, kind of in a different way, though, like in more of like, <laughs> maybe a little less like emotionally attached way. But both of us like kind of did a deep dive into everything. And then that continued into the NICU because she had she was such a complex case. Mm -hmm. If it was an isolated cleft palate, like that's a lot more streamlined, but like she couldn't breathe on her own. She couldn't eat. So she was being NG2 fed and all that stuff. Um, and really the cleft palate wasn't the biggest concern her first few months. Um, but the big thing like with her initially was getting her on the specialized Dr. Brown's bottle, which doesn't require suction. Um, and then learning all those little things. Like I would hear interesting noises from her, like grunts and growls and like researching, like, what is this? And realizing like, Oh yeah. Like I do hear some glottal stops happening. Like I do hear some interesting things that I yeah. should discourage just so it doesn't become a learned error, you know, after palate repair. Um, but it's been very interesting to see her speech development because she's definitely delayed she, it was fascinating right after cleft repair at 12 months to hear the new sounds immediately. Wow. Yeah. Um, hearing like those plosives, like the D and things like she just, I mean, they little cleft babies, like they physically can't produce those right. sounds prior to palate repair. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's been obviously like a difficult experience, but also very enlightening to be like on the parent side of intervention as well. She does get speech therapy. And then obviously we've worked with like a slew of doctors within the craniofacial team and like she, OTs, she's going to be starting myofunctional therapy soon. 
PT, like, so it has been, I think it's helped me experience that parent side and perhaps have like more empathy or more just like insight into what that's like to be managing like all the doctor visits and all the just like stress and anxiety. Like, am I doing enough or what is this? And yeah, so that's kind of like the gist on her and the cleft palate stuff. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I've learned like a thousand percent more about all of it just through my research and trying to learn more. Mm-hmm. I think that's interesting when it's one thing to hear, oh, you're going to, or it's one thing to read, you're going to see these types of sound patterns. You're going to see glottal stops and pharyngeal fricatives. It's another thing to actually hear what that sounds like and to be able to recognize it and to train your ear to notice that. Because what's really interesting is, you know, how parents will, they, they don't, with their perception, they, they start to recognize it as the sound that was intended. So they don't even realize that it's acoustically not the same as what the child is trying to say, because they just aren't coming at it from the perspective of, you know, I need to train my ears to recognize all these different things that are going on here. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. What if it wasn't for my background, like I would miss probably 90% of what's going on with her. Like, honestly, like, it's very interesting to think about because I would just think, oh, that's her. Like, that's the way she talks or like, that's the way she, you know, those are like little noises she makes. But you realize like, oh, no, like this is actually what anatomically is going on Mm -hmm. and how it's presenting. Yeah. What are some common things as far as the, the sounds and some common patterns that you see when you have a child with a cleft? Um, so in, well, like in terms of compensatory errors or like articulation yeah. errors. Yeah, both. Okay. Um, so what's interesting is, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily her, but a lot of sounds are very slushy. I don't think she's getting yes. great like movement in her mm-hmm. mouth. Mm-hmm. And also there's a lot of, it sounds like very nasally. Yeah. Um, it can go either way, but I feel like oftentimes they do cleft affected children do sound more nasally and the common, some common compensatory errors for these kids are, well, glottal stops are by far the largest one you see, um, which is, you know, they're stopping the airflow at the vocal folds and it kind of is like an abrupt sound and glottal yeah. stops and like do occur in the English, in the English language, uh, sometimes appropriately with cleft kids, you'll hear them. A lot of times, especially more like plosive sounds. So if they're saying puppy, they might go uh, e. Yeah. Um, you also think they nasal. can't build up the air pressure because yeah. they're left. Yeah. yeah. Not proper air pressure. And like all those compensatory errors, they're stopping the air force airflow somewhere like that's not supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's yeah. like nasal fricatives or it's, you know, the fricatives are going through the nasal cavity instead or um, like pharyngeal stops um, mid dorsum, mid dorsal palatal stops, which is like the K or the T sound is happening more in the middle of the palate. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's some of those, they almost, it's like, so where people can hear if a, if a child is saying, you know, wabbit instead of rabbit, it's very clear that there's another sound that you could recognize that's being substituted. So people recognize that as an articulation error. Whereas if they're saying something that isn't, it's, it's close enough to the sound that 
people start to think, oh yeah, they they can say that. They can say their K's and their G's, but yes. they're not really. It's like a middle KG sound. It's not quite the G, you know, it's true. Like it is harder to get a feel on it. And I, that, that's happened with my daughter where I'm like, is she saying go? Like, is that a good G? Yeah. You know, it's like so hard to hear it sometimes. Can you um, imitate them? Like, would you ever try to say it the way that she says it just to I sort of feel get... like it's so hard it's like it's yeah it's like it's a cross between either like a can of g or a t and a d because it's usually you know for the mid dorsum bottle stop it's like mixing the front and the back sound whether it's the voiced or voiceless cognate yeah. um i don't even know if i can do it like i'm so bad at imitating i remember christy at Christy voice, she does voice therapy and has an Instagram. She once imitated like all the resonance sounds like the cul-de-sac resonance. And I'm like, I just, I don't even know how she does that. It's so difficult for me. That would be interesting. I should, I should check that out because I think again, I, I don't know if I can imitate (laughs) some of those glottal stops are a little bit easier. That's That's a common one. Yeah. Um, some of them are quite interesting with the yeah, the fricative noise, it's just moving the, I guess we're not used to it. We're not used to producing sounds that way or moving airflow that way. So mm. it's very unnatural to try to produce it. Yeah. And, you know, so I had um, uh, a student who uh, didn't get, there was a lot going on medically. So the, with the, with the cleft, um, they did a pharyngeal flap, but she was, uh, eight or nine. So she had a lot, a lot of years of, you know, compensatory errors. And I did notice that there were more sound errors or, or, or things that, she, that she could say with, you know, with air pressure and things like that. Um, I don't know, there were, I don't know if there were other medical concerns or there was a concern about how successful is the surgery going to be? And is it worth putting her through another surgery? But I just remember it being, really just being a school practitioner and not having access to all of the instrumentation needed. Um, it was, it could be challenging to feel like I knew, like I was giving her access to all the things that she needed. Now she did go to a cleft palate team and I did get to go like the, the school district, you know, let me go and, you know, meet with the team, which was really interesting, but but yeah, that was uh, that that's hard when you're the person in the school and there's all those medical needs and it's which things fall on your plate as a school practitioner and how much can you really do, especially when there are severe communication needs and the right. And it's yeah. not something you come across, it's not super common. Yeah. So it's just hard to feel confident in that area, but I think that's a good point you're making because I I do think that's an underutilized tool is like if you're working with a, you know, cleft affected kid, reach out to the craniofacial team, reach out to the craniofacial SLP and be like, Hey, yeah. give me info on this kid. Like, or, you know, for ask them questions or things mm-hmm. like that, because they are a really great resource because that's their niche. And they know, yeah. you know, like they're, they're just a good resource to reach out to. Um, and I think more than more often than not, like they'll be happy to help. Yeah. You know? That was my experience as well. She was mm-hmm. like, she was always happy to share information and was always very respectful of, you know, the, the 
school SLP guidelines and things like that. I know it would be frustrating when you are working with people who work in a medical setting who really don't understand the school guidelines. And it's almost like they're giving you a laundry list of demands of things that need to happen at the school versus being like, here's how I'm going to help you and do the things that you are not able to do in the school setting so that you can do your job better. You know, it it can get it can get a little dicey, but I had a great experience working with the cleft palate team. They were very mm-hmm. supportive. So that's good to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so I had just a couple questions about that before we move on to some of the other topics, but what are some common like misconceptions that you have seen in the field of speech pathology or just working with kids in general with cleft, you know, medical teams, school teams, what are some common mistakes and misconceptions that you've seen? Um, so there are times in treatment that you're using like either like cotton balls or tissues to help the kid get a visual feedback. If the air is coming out properly through the nasal cavity or the oral cavity And that can sometimes be mistaken for oral motor exercises, Mm. which is kind of like a hot topic of being accepted form of treatment. And now it's like, no, this has been proven time and time again, not to be effective. So um, I think some people are like, wait, no, don't pull out the cotton balls, but it's, it's being used for a different purpose. It's not being used to help like strengthen uh, like muscles in the mouth or something or get, you know, movement. I like, you know, like greater tongue movement or something. It's, really to give the child, because a lot of times when you're treating a compensatory error, the first thing you're doing is getting the child to discriminate between the oral, like, like an oral consonant and like a nasal consonant. And then also where that uh, air is coming from for them when they produce the sound. It's a lot of discrimination work in the beginning. So um, don't be afraid to pull out some of those tools. Yeah. (laughs) You're not doing oral motor exercises. Um, so that can be a thing. What else? Um, I think that the work with cleft kids and speech needs to start sooner than a lot of people think. Oh yeah. Um, because a lot of times it's like, Oh, well, they're not talking yet. Like we'll circle back once they're, you know, like after a year, like once they start getting some first words and really like all that stuff, all that buildup needs to be happening prior to first words. And we need to make sure that they're not already learning compensate, like those glottal stops as a baby, Um, not that they need to be like in full blown, like speech therapy, but I think at least guiding the parents and giving them proper information about development. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, I think that's just hard there. Why that happens is like a whole slew of like underlying issues within like the healthcare system and like, like, you know, insurance and like, who's going to pay out for it and stuff like that. It's more complex than it seems than, you know. Yeah. Or, or just people being like, they'll grow out of it. We'll do it later. (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, Oh, please. No. Cause yeah. Like these compensatory errors, the longer the kids are doing them, the harder it is to get rid of them. Yeah. So you want to start early. Um, and especially, yeah, like get on it as quick as possible to help them get proper articulation sounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably the biggest piece of bad advice that gets thrown around in parent groups is just I'll grow out of it wait and see we'll do it later it's frustrating I sometimes I I can't even look 
I, I yeah. can't even look at the comments. In those I've, I mean, I've had people tell me that just like, you know, little like moms I meet with, you know, with my daughter, like, oh, I mean, cause she's also a COVID baby. She was born 2020. She was born May, 2020, like the beginning of COVID. <laughs> and I think like a lot of people are thinking of these COVID babies and a lot of them are like delayed, you know, those 2020, 2021 babies. So like, oh, given she's a COVID baby and like her diagnosis, she'll, I mean, she'll catch up. And I'm like, but I just would rather not risk that. Like, I'd rather do what I can now than just hope for the best. Um, but yeah, a lot of parents are hearing this. Which well, it's, it's frustrating know. when you have the professional background and other people are giving you that advice. You. It's, yeah. And I, I have a, a different you know, context, but where it's like, oh, it'll be fine. And I'm like, no, I have a doctorate in special ed and I've done years of research on this and I've consulted with lots of professionals and I've seen lots of other kids go through this same progression. Don't tell me it's going to just be fine because I have this whole stack of evidence that shows that, you know, I mean, obviously nothing is certain and you can't predict the future, but yeah, that's it's frustrating because you feel like as a parent, you don't have anywhere to go for help. Like sometimes I feel like I'm crazy. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, uh, yeah. Yeah, I know. I mean, I've definitely gotten some pushback from like family members or yeah, even just like some other professionals where I'm like, no, like even starting myofunctional therapy, like a lot of questions surrounding that because it is newer. And I'm like, I'd rather... I have the means to pay for this. I'd rather do that than yeah. just hope it works out. And like, let's see in a couple of years if she's still doing open mouth breathing all the time. Like I'd rather, I'd rather not. And a lot of times it's well-meaning, like, you know, trying to like comfort the parent, like, oh, like they'll be fine. Like it'll be yeah. fine. But it's like, well, yeah, she will be fine. Like she'll, she'll have a great life, but I would rather be proactive now. Well, I think, I think it's just a natural thing that people do is that you want to make the person feel better in the moment, but really it it doesn't help them. It's like, uh, you know, giving someone a bandaid when they need surgery, it temporarily might look like it makes it feel better or whatever, but it really doesn't help in the long run. I think about that with just the way that we interact with parents and the way that we share information, because giving people false reassurance is just not helpful in the long run or even giving kids false reassurance for that matter. But yeah, anyways, <laughs> so, so since you have been um, your, your home with your kids, you've been using your clinical skills in other ways. So what are some of the things that you're working on now? So I, I've been creating all kinds of resources. My niche is more language based, especially like early language based, more elementary, like you know, preschool, elementary, school mm-hmm. aged. Um, I also create a lot of development type resources that just kind of became a thing. Like I post about a lot on social media and became a big interest for people. I created like a free download from all these like Insta- Instagram posts I created and that kind of snowballed into, okay, let me do like a way more in-depth one that is for clinicians, mm-hmm. um, including like you know, just like all the things I could think of. It's basically like a huge refresher on development and terminology and like the research behind certain things and commonly asked questions about certain things. So that's been a bit big thing I've worked on. Um, I did one for grammar. 
I, um, I just put one out with more like age related instead of topic related. So I, it's kind of like, I kind of create what I, what I want to. And sometimes it comes from suggestions. Um, yeah, like requests. Cause I do get quite a bit of requests and I can't mm-hmm. do them all. And I usually select them based upon what I think will, like what most people need, mm-hmm. um, what kind of fits into the types of resources I'm creating and what people know me for. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's been great. Like it's, I, it kind of just, I didn't really like seek out this like career path, I guess, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's worked out great. And like, like I said, with my daughter and like her medical needs and actually my son, when he was born, some things happened, I couldn't go back to work right away. So this was, I feel like I got really fortunate with finding this like random, um, I mean, it's not too random, but finding a different way to use my skill set, basically, you know? My, uh, one of my mentors in grad school, and this was really before Teachers Pay Teachers was really big, and it was more of the bigger publishing companies. She always used to say that she's like, clinicians could be doing, you know, really well. She would say they could be making the big bucks, or, <laughs> but she would say, you know, clinicians could really create some kind of an additional income stream here and use their skills this way because they have the knowledge and the background of what actually needs to go into these materials versus, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm not sure how it works with the bigger publishing companies, the credentials of the people who are deciding what words go where and all of those mm-hmm. things, or, or just the materials and the information that goes with that gives people an idea of how to use them. Right. Um, she always used to say that how people should do that. And people are doing it all the time now. So it's great that clinicians are using their skills and that it's easy to put things on teachers, pay teachers or Etsy or wherever else. I wanted to take a quick break here and mention something specific that you can do to advocate for your students as well as take on a leadership role on your IEP team. If you are a related service provider, you likely have students who appear to be disengaged, not motivated, who tend to struggle to get their assignments completed both in class and with homework, and often avoid some of the most challenging tasks that they need to do in order to actually learn new skills and get more confident. So many times these issues are related to executive functioning. Oftentimes these students get labeled as lazy or defiant, but really it stems from a much deeper issue. There's a lot of anxiety there because they are not sure how to visualize the steps that they need to do in order to complete tasks. And this comes across as behavior issues, it causes issues with social relationships, and it can have a huge impact on students' self-esteem and mental health. So many times schools think that they need to do all kinds of positive reinforcement, behavior management, talk therapy. Some of those things can be appropriate in certain situations, but if we want students to be more resilient and build their executive functioning skills, we have to actually teach them 
executive functioning skills. And everyone who interacts with kids on a daily basis plays a critical role in this process. That's why I've created a free executive functioning implementation guide to outline everyone's role in this process. This includes the professional's roles in the school setting, as well as what students and parents can do. So if you are a related service provider and you want to help your team get on the right track so that you can support your caseload, definitely check out my executive functioning guide. To download that guide, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash efschools. So you've got, I saw you were posting the other day, you posted something about developmental uh, developmental milestones. That seems to be a big trend that has come up the last couple years. It's always been something that people wanted, but it really, uh, there was a big boom this year with some of the things that went on. Have you found that as well? Um, Yeah, I think like with new research coming out, And I think whenever like a new article comes out, like the new articulation norms or the new intelligibility norms, which have been in the past couple of years, it kind of like causes this big stir. Oh, for Um, sure. And I think it's important, like, yeah, it's good. There's new research coming out and it's good. We have these like milestone charts and things like that, but it's also good to realize like, It is not this like language is not this strict, like straight line. Like this is how language is like acquired. This is how it develops. Like it's such a two-sided coin of like, yeah, we need these like milestones, but at the same time, like don't hold tight to them and like ride or die. (laughs) We need to be a little bit flexible and realize every kid develops differently, especially when it comes to language therapy. Um, So yeah, I think it, it is discussed a lot because people get into that, that kind of topic too, or they start getting too rigid to it mm-hmm. um, type of I've thing. I've seen it go both ways where some people, because I get asked about that a lot with language and I do more school age. And even before, you know, this last year where when they, you know, they redid the milestones and people were upset because there wasn't a speech pathologist involved in that process. But um, also people were, you know, involved in the neurodiversity movement had some concerns about it because it's, you know, again, those are based on neurotypical norms. So those there were those concerns as well. But with school age, I've been saying for the longest time when people are like, what's age appropriate for third grade? There really never existed some kind of neat little guidelines. And, you know, a lot of the research shows that it's kind of dangerous to try to fit it into this little box. So we never really could have used them in the way that a lot of people think that they should use them as sort of this cutoff. Or I think with the whole question about neurodiversity, it's like the the norms are there as a piece of information to show you whether you should look at something further and to give you a general guideline. They're not there to be the goal in therapy. And I think that that's where you can kind of address some of those objections about, you know, autistic kids developing differently. It's like, Sure, the norms might be relevant to bring up, but it doesn't mean that that's what we're trying to get them to do in therapy is meet the norms. It's real. Yeah. Like you said, it's a guideline and we need like something to kind of keep us in, you know, like, okay, like, where are we at here? Especially for parents. Like if a parent has concerns, it's like, this is generally like Mm -hmm. what we're looking at, you know, do, are there still concerns or not? So yeah, they're, they're helpful. It's just we need to make sure we're using them as a guide, not yeah, 
Well, and because if you don't have anything, then you get the whole, the other, the opposite thing where it's, oh, just wait and see. And, you know, don't, then, then you don't get intervention for kids that need it. So, so I'm curious with, you know, you've, you've identified some trends, obviously within your area of expertise of language and some things that you've seen that are just trends in the field or needs as a parent what I mean, what kinds of things have you done to build up your skills in learning how to create resources for people? It's been a lot of trial and error. It's just a lot of practice, I guess. Yeah. Um, when I first started creating resources, they were just for me. Like I was working and it was out of necessity because I like I did not have money to buy, go online and buy from those like publishing companies. Because, yeah. yeah, this was also like back when TPT was very, very, very new, like mm-hmm. very new. And I would only download the free stuff. Like I just couldn't afford to pay for stuff. And at that point, my my time wasn't as valuable as my money. So I was creating just for my own caseload. Um, and then that like slowly evolved into actually selling it, which is a whole new ballgame. Like you need commercial use, everything you, you know, it's it's learning a lot of like the marketing and like the business side of things. Um so it's been a lot of just practice, trial and error, Googling stuff, um, mm-hmm. things like that. And as I've gained more like followers, I think that that's helped in the sense of like, yeah, finding kind of like what I enjoy creating, what I enjoy putting out, what people seem to like associate me with. Um, I Yeah, like I said, I get suggestions for resources um, so being able to have that like communication with SLPs and SLPAs and different, you know, preschool teachers, different educators helps with like the ideas and what kinds of resources they want, whether that's like digital or more interactive stuff or whatever it is. So it's all kind of come together over the years. Um, but in the beginning, yeah, it was definitely more difficult where I just kind of felt like this like island and trying to figure everything out on my own. Yeah. Well, and cause I see it as, um, and I've actually, when you look at the whole process of creating products, I, the way that I learned how to do it was sort of like what you did where it's, I took some courses to learn about general, you know, just marketing and business. And some of them were offered by people who were, you know, like doing it freelance. So it, you kind of have to vet to see if they actually know what they're talking about and things like that. But, but yeah, um, my husband has a a corporate position um, and he worked in the department where they do all of that market, the researching trends and the prototyping and the market research. And as I kind of figured out what they were doing there and would, would talk to him about what he was doing, it was like, oh, this is actually a thing that big companies do in mm-hmm. order to figure out how to put a product out there. It's just that when you're really small, you have this sort of abbreviated process. But even for the bigger companies, it can be kind of messy. Like the whole, what you're describing there is the researching of trends and the market research. So like, you know, looking out there and saying, oh, the CDC just published, you know, just updated the new developmental milestones. Or there was this research article that came out that, changed you know what the articulation norm should be so there's research on trends and then you're talking to people who are following you and giving you all of that feedback and Mm -hmm. so that's actually something that 
big companies do that I think a lot of people who are clinicians are, they're actually doing all of that without realizing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's a bit, it comes like a bit natural, right? Like as yeah. humans, we're communicating with others and we're asking people what they think and like bouncing ideas off each other, whatever. So it does happen a lot. Um, but when you're running a business, like it's, yeah, it's like, an, it's a necessity. Uh, yeah. To it's have cool those how kinds when, of systems. Yeah. Like when you have that following, you have a little laboratory that you can sort of test. Mm-hmm. So once you're done, so like, let's say that you have gone back and forth, like, you know, that there's something that is trending now and people are asking you for it and you've got an idea of what features they want. What does your process look like from there when you create something and just put it out into the world? Um, so, I mean, I usually create in PowerPoint. That sounds kind of rudimentary, but it works pretty well for me. So like I'll mock things up. I usually have like my go-to fonts and my go-to colors, which streamline things. I have saved like templates or like outlines. Sometimes I have to create completely from scratch. Um, but sometimes I can like plug things in, which is nice. Um, and then from there it's sending it out to be proofread or running it past anybody, or, um, I'll sometimes show like sneak peeks on social media and be like, what else do you want in this? Is there anything I've missed? Um, get feedback that way. Um, and then I usually like print it and try to use it in some way, or I'll send it to friends to use and get feedback from, and then I end up like the whole like marketing and like things that people don't think of, but like, I have to like take pictures of it. I take videos of using it. Mm-hmm. I write a bunch of, you know, like copy for the description, make sure that's like as clear as, as possible. Um, so like the marketing copy for social media, for my email list, for the product description, and then uploading it to TBT into my website with all the photos So yeah, I feel like once I create a resource, like once I'm actually finished creating it, there's still quite a few steps to getting Mm -hmm. it to the point where it can be posted and ready. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's kind of, I don't know. Is that kind of what you're asking? Kind of like the process. How do you, do you do all your graphic design and your images? And I know you use a lot of clip art. Like where do you, where did you learn how to do that then do you do all of that yourself or do you hire anybody to do some of that so my husband actually creates clip art for me so the clip art that I sell in my store my husband's created he's a thousand times more artistic than I am um so I either buy clip art commercial use clip art which is available on teachers pay teachers or Etsy or wherever um or I have like yeah now I have quite an inventory of clip art that my husband's created and that I actually posts for other like education authors to purchase and use in their resources. Um, but it's been basically what kind of kickstarted my husband doing that for me is occasionally I wouldn't be able to find a specific image I needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he would make it for me. And then it got to the point where I was getting requests from people where I realized this like whole set that I want doesn't exist. So a lot of the sets he's created for me are very specialty niche in the SLP and the SPED world, like life skills based, really language heavy. So creating like a kitchen and having like all the things open and closed or hot and cold um, or dark, you know, like the lights are on or off. So more really like language heavy things like, you know, 
maybe like a true clip art artist wouldn't be thinking about. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's really nice to have when you're creating a resource because it makes it easy to target all of that language. So um yeah, that's kind of been like this like side thing that that he's done for me over the years on occasion. It's kind of slowed down, but um it's nice having him in my back pocket if I need something. Yeah. That's, that was always, um, and I haven't done a lot on teachers pay teachers. I'd focused more on the course and the research and the training, but that is definitely something that is not a strength of mine that like some of my stuff is in an ugly Microsoft word document and it's out there and people can use it, but it's not that pretty, you know, and sometimes when you're working with kids, you want it to be visually appealing and even from a marketing perspective, it it sells better when you have good presentation. Right. So, and that's, I think that, um, you know, I'm coming from more of the academic background. You think, oh, who cares if it's pretty? It just needs to work and it needs to be evidence-based. But I think, I mean, both are important because if people aren't using it, then your your work isn't out there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. They're both really important. So, I know. I wish, I feel like you asked me if I did like a graphics design course or something and I never have, but I feel like it'd be super interesting, but it's, it's one of those things. Like if I look at what I was creating years ago, like I've had a huge, a huge glow up in how I've like present and lay out things and like the general design of things. So practice makes perfect, I guess. Like it's, I've, I've definitely gotten better with all of that. Um, and I, yeah, it, it also helps being able to send it to people who have a design eye and are like, uh, line this up here or like do this different. I know it's so I always, I can tell when it looks bad, I'll do it and I'll be like, <laughs> this looks terrible. Or even, so I'm working with some, you know, people when I'm doing ads, well, there I'll say generally what I want and then they'll come back and I'll be like, I still don't like it, but I don't know what to tell you to do. Change. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, that, yeah. yeah. They, they just know like people who are really good at that. I worked with a consultant this past summer who had, she had other business and corporate background, but she was really good at the design element and she did some design work for me and it looks so much nicer. And she did tell me some things with just, she was like, you're smooshing your font here. And you know, people's eyes won't with, with tracking and with colors or even with, um, I do a lot with email marketing. So when you have these big blocks of texts, because I write a lot, there's design elements for actual written copy with using different fonts and, you know, italics and um, bolding and all of that, that she showed me how to do, which, um, so I'm like, okay, I, I got this down for the writing, but graphic design and images, I still haven't figured that out yet. So I always, um, I mean, like your stuff is very you know, eye catching. And that's why I asked about it because I can always tell them like, this person is good at this. And I look at my stuff. <laughs> oh yeah. So, oh my gosh, my Instagram feed, if you scroll it a few years ago, I'm like, Oh, what was, what was I doing? Yeah, here? So I, I think everyone would feel that way. Like you scroll back and you're like, Oh, this was, this was not good. And I thought it was good. <laughs> well, sometimes I know it's not good, but I'm like, it's, it's all right. We're going with it. <laughs> we're yeah. putting it out there. What about the business and marketing stuff? Have you done any, uh, you know, professional development in that area? I've done some, like I've purchased some courses on like SEO, search engine optimization, or like, yeah, copywriting, things mm-hmm. like that. 
Um, I wish I had done more. I like when I was first starting out, I was just like, I, I didn't want to spend any extra money. Like I created my own website from hand. I don't even know how I did that. Looking back, (laughs) I'm like, I should not have done that. Like somehow it's still held together. Um, so yeah, I wish I had invested more into those types of courses or services to help me do things right. Like the first time or to learn things faster. And there are, I would say now there are way more courses and opportunities out there than when I was like starting this journey back in like 2016 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is also a lot of free information out there. Like I listen to a lot of podcasts. I, you know, mm-hmm. I'm on, I follow other people who talk a lot about email marketing or, you know, running sites, things like that, um, on their email list. So I get information from them. There's a lot of information out there to kind of gain, um, and learn about business, but it is a lot like, that's the thing about running a business. It's a lot of spinning plates of just a lot of different things to know and to learn and to remember and like actually put into action. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you don't, realize it. Um, and that's another thing that's been interesting with, um, again, like kind of looking at what my, my husband does in the corporate world where you don't realize how much, how many things that you're doing by yourself. And then you look at a big company and it's like, that's 10 different departments that you just did in an afternoon. (laughs) It's crazy. Yeah. It's like, here's the email marketing team. Here's the like Instagram team. Here's the like (laughs) graphics team. Yeah. Yeah. I know. And it's hard to, it's hard to be good at all of it at once. Um, yeah. That's, that's kind and of just to find time mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Cause I, I, I love to just create all day, like create resources all day. I don't want to have to worry about marketing it or posting on social media or that is what everybody says. And then you realize mm-hmm. that that is such a, cause I love, you know, I love making courses. I love doing the research and the writing, but, and I could do that. You know, I have a lot of stuff that's just sitting there on the internet, but if it's not optimized, then nobody's looking at it. Yeah, no one's going to see it. Yeah. So uh, I think that a lot of creators feel like that. And I think that a lot of clinicians feel like that because we don't get taught marketing. And sometimes Mm -hmm. people think it's kind of icky, but it really, it's really important, not just for if you're selling your products, but just even if you're talking to people about what you do, I mean, Mm -hmm. So that you don't have all this misinformation, you know, like we've been talking about today or just, Mm -hmm. you know, just knowing how to talk about things to parents or to other professionals on your team and all of that. So it is really important. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Before we wrap up, do you, I'm curious about um, something that I've been kind of looking into is just the whole idea of intellectual property and some of the legal things, what kinds of things came up and what are, I know you probably, you know, talk to a lot of other sellers and things like that. What are some of the biggest questions and mistakes that, you know, like people don't know about when it comes to copyrights and images and all that kind of thing? Um, you have to have commercial use everything. So if you buy any type of like image, like photo or clip art, or you're using fonts or using a program to create something to sell, like you have to have commercial use everything. Um, and then it's smart to have like a 
terms of use mm-hmm. in each document. And then I actually like to put a, like a footer up all of my pages that have like copyright with the year and my business name and my um, website. So making sure that if someone like randomly comes across like just one page of yours, like they can realize like, oh, this is where it came from. And also before I create anything, I make sure like I'll do a Google search and make sure that it's going to be unique and nothing else is named that. Mm, Um, Yeah. You can actually go to websites like trademarkia or something and see if anything is like any um, phrases or words are trademarked already. Um, But yeah, it's just, it's within our specific, specific niche. Like it's hard not there. Of course there's going to be overlap right on resources or what's created, but you want to make sure that you're also not like it's, it's unique enough. And that does happen a lot where I'll see something. And I'm like, that looks very, very similar to something I've created. Like, yeah, I think a lot of people get a little too inspired. So it's, I mean, that's more, not necessarily like a straight legal thing, but more just, um, like being a good person where it's not, you know, you're not getting too inspired by what you see online, um, when you're creating, but copyright, like you can actually copyright words, or your business name or like mm-hmm. phrases. It's a like going through a copyright lawyer. Um, so if you have like a course or like a membership or like something that you've created and you want to copyright that name, you, you can. Um, but yeah, it's, it's kind of, I'm, I'm always nervous about the copyright and like trademark infringement. And I'm always pretty careful and try to search for things prior to making, uh, just so I don't waste my time and realize it later. <laughs> yeah, I've done it. So music, obviously you can go to royalty free and check the mm-hmm. license. Like, cause I, I used, you know, music for my, for my podcast and things like that, or um, images I haven't done as much with. And so that's why, you know, I'm asking about that. Cause I haven't created a lot of um, resources with images, but um the uh, yeah names is the biggest thing i definitely do the googling as well mm-hmm. podcast names or just if you just you know type it into the search engine and a lot of times it's not the other person doesn't have it trademarked but like you said sometimes you just want to not take a name that somebody that else still feels kind of icky like even if yeah. they haven't trademarked it like don't yeah <laughs> i mean don't it's, <laughs> it's impossible to totally avoid it but especially when some people have these names of their programs that it's just one word and it's like, or like very generic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so that is a little bit harder to to do. I actually did before I rebranded the podcast to the leadership angle, I did trademark the name. Are they 18 yet? So I do own the trademark for that. Mm -hmm. The podcasting program that I went to, they had a trademark lawyer come in and basically was like this is what could happen and this is how much money the lawsuit will be if you violate somebody like it just scared me I was like okay fine I'll trademark it yeah but but yeah um I think that even just using there's that trademark website you can go to to just do a search and so that's Mm -hmm. a good way to check it so yeah oh anyways well um I think that uh, this is a good place to wrap up. So where can people go to learn more about products you offer and some of the resources that you have? Yeah, so my website, allisonfors.com, just my first and last name, that has 
all my products, all my freebies, has a huge freebie library, um, blog posts, topic pages, things like that. My teacher's pay teacher store is my name, Allison Fours. And then I'm on, you can find me on any social media channel and Pinterest. The one I am most active on is Instagram. And my handle is at speech.allisonfors. Great. Well, thank you so much for being here with me today. Yes, thank you. Before we wrap up, I wanted to remind you to check out the show notes for all of the links to Allison's resources and where you can connect with her. And also don't forget to check out the Executive Functioning Implementation Guide. If you are a school practitioner and you want to help your IEP team to implement executive functioning support across your student's day, and support the rest of the kids in your building, but you're not exactly sure where everyone fits in in the process, then you'll definitely want to check out the Executive Functioning Guide. In this guide, I share exactly why this is such an important area to supporting children's mental health, as well as helping them build strong relationships. So to download this free guide so you can get your team on the right track, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash EF schools. Finally, if you have a guest that you would like to see on the show, or if you have a suggestion for a guest, someone who has shown some type of leadership in their clinical role, or just someone who has shown leadership in supporting kids in their community, I would love to hear about them. I always love to get great suggestions for guests, as well as if you want to recommend yourself for an interview you'll want to email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. And if you would like me to come speak to your group on language, leadership, or executive functioning, then you'll also want to email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com as well. So now we'll wrap up, but thank you so much for listening. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. 
If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.